0: It's time to thrive! Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it! One of my favorite sea creatures is the sea turtle. I I love to watch those turtles swim in the water. As a scuba diver, I get to often swim with some in different places. I've seen them when I've been in Mexico. I've seen them in different places in the Caribbean. I've seen them in, in Hawaii. And they also frequent the coast of North Carolina and South Carolina where we vacation. And... So one of my big attractions to these creatures is how graceful they are in the water, even though they are lumbering creatures on land. They're built for the sea. Those fins get them somewhere so quickly, and yet on the land, they are lumbering giants. And so I wanted to tell you a little bit uh, that I discovered a few years back uh, about turtles my wife and I were strolling down the beach and it was in the evening and there was a lot of hubbub because there was going to be uh, a boil in a nest. And so if you're not aware... Turtles go back to the same place they came from, the places where they were born. They go back there to lay eggs years later. However they find it, it's kind of a mystery, but they'll lumber up onto the sand and pull themselves all the way up to the dunes, and as long as they're not interrupted, they'll dig themselves a hole, and they'll deposit the eggs in the hole, and they'll cover it back up and lumber back down to the ocean, and off they go. The problem is that the numbers of turtles that are eaten along the way is is pretty substantial. So like one in a thousand sea turtles that are hatched on a shore will ever make it back there to lay their eggs and continue the process. So what's important in the whole process of keeping turtles alive is making sure that as many get back to the ocean as possible. Here's the problem. Mama Turtle comes up, lays her eggs, and leaves them alone in a nest to be found by raccoons and foxes and dogs and cats and birds and all kinds of things that would love to dig down and eat those delicious eggs. So most beaches where turtles come on shore have a turtle patrol and Turtle Patrol volunteer people who make sure that they uh, keep an eye on the, those nests. And sometimes they will dig up a nest and move it to a better place. Sometimes they'll dig in and count all of the eggs so that they have a count of how many should be hatching when it's time for the boil. And the boil is simply that moment when the eggs hatch in mass. Usually uh, it's in the evening and the, the sand has cooled a certain number of degrees and oftentimes there's a moon and the, the, that's the time when those little babies pop out and get themselves to the ocean, but they boil out because there's so many that are hatching at one time. They, they just kind of boil out of that hole. So a lot of times these nests are protected. They're often moved to safer locations and then they'll often put uh, some wire around them to keep the, uh, the, uh, the, the, what would like to snack on those eggs away from it. So my family for years have watched this process and uh, we all love the turtles and so we were hoping to see a boil. So we go to the site of the nest where they're waiting. The certain number of days have come and passed and they're waiting for the boil. So here's the thing that happens on that boil. First of all, already the volunteers have secured the nest and made sure that those eggs have as best a chance of hatching as possible. So the first part of the process of protecting them until they're born has already happened. But when they are born, they have to make their way all the way down to the ocean because when they're born, they have to pull themselves down the beach, into the waves, and off they go. Now, that span from the nest to the ocean is a fairly a dangerous time for them. It's kind of like a moving buffet for lots of other things that are coming along. That moving buffet is a great place for birds to pick them off, for the foxes to grab a snack, for the raccoons to grab the baby turtles, because at that point, they're pretty soft and pretty uh, easy to grab, and and they're they are completely defenseless. Baby turtles have no defense until they're too big to be easily bothered by those things, and that takes a while. They have to get to the ocean. So on their path to the ocean, they have to pull themselves on these gangly arms down to the water as best they can. And they're going through... The sand, if you've ever walked on the beach, you know that there's this difference between walking near the water where the sand is kind of hard to walking up in the loose sand that kind of tires out your legs and your arms. And so once you're on that hard part near the surf, you can easily run if you were a runner or walk comfortably. But if you run up in the loose dirt or walk in the loose dirt, you're asking for quite a workout for your legs. Well, the turtles are the same thing. They have to pull themselves through that sand. And get down to the ocean. So I'm having this conversation while we're awaiting the boil. And we were waiting and waiting. And so I have this conversation with this uh, turtle volunteer. And she's telling me about turtles. And I know some about turtles. But boy, she knew a lot about turtles. And so finally I said, so I know that this is the dangerous time for them. You know, they're making it from the nest to the ocean. I know it's a dangerous time. She said, yeah, it's, it really, I mean, after they get in the ocean, there's no way we can protect them, but we try to make sure that as many get to the ocean as possible. I said, so why don't we just pick them up? Why don't we just pick them up and carry them down this past this dangerous part, and put them in the ocean? And she said, well, that would make a lot of sense, wouldn't it? And I said, yeah. And I said, then they have a hit start. I mean, we make sure that all of them make it to the water. She said, well, we used to do that. And what we discovered is when they get to the ocean, if you just put them in, they can't swim. And what we've realized is that on the swim, uh, on the climb down the sand, they're getting ready for the swim in the ocean. The climb through the beach, the, the pushing themselves through, activates the muscles in their body that prepare them to get to the ocean. Because once they're in the ocean, they have to be able to swim as fast as they can to get out of the way of the creatures that are waiting for them. There's another moving buffet as they're getting into the water and swimming away. But not only that, because they are turtles and they don't breathe in the water, they have to be able to get themselves to the top and breathe or they'll drown. And so a lot of times we are putting them in without them having done the crawl and they couldn't get themselves back to the surface. The crawl from here to there activates the muscles in their chest so that they can get out to sea and hit adulthood. I thought that was pretty interesting because it's interesting for turtles, but it also has an interesting lesson for us as parents. Most of the time when you're pregnant, you work the best you can to make sure that that inf- that, that fetus stays healthy, right? You do everything you can in utero while the, the baby's in the mama to make sure that everything is is being done health-wise. So you take vitamins and you eat better and you you try to stay away from harmful things and harmful situations and and possible places where that baby, that little infant, or not even infant at that point, but that uh, uh, pre-born fetus is going to be in danger. And so we do that. That's kind of like taking care of the nest, making sure that nest is protected. And then we have childhood, which is basically the time from birth until they're ready to launch into the world, the ocean. And it's that time in the sand where we as parents are tempted to carry them along, to not let them activate those muscles. Now, when we were there that night, as the turtles came up, we formed kind of a human gate down, and we we kind of smoothed out a couple of places that looked like they would have a hard time climbing over. But we allowed them to do the crawl. What we did as help was to make sure that their crawl space was not invaded by dangerous elements. And so we kept anything that could have been dangerous away, partly but just by our presence. And, and if something were to come, we would have, you know, shoot it away. And so we were protecting the turtles pretty much unbeknownst to the turtles, while we were letting them do their thing, while we were letting them build their muscle and learn how to use those muscles so that when they got to the open ocean, they were ready to go. To me, this is the place where we understand parenting from a different perspective. Last week in the introduction, I talked about the fact that there are two paradigms for how we can parent. We can either parent like the egg or we can parent like the ball. And parenting the egg means that we see a child as fragile and needing to be protected and and kept safe and wrapped in cellophane and and always at a safe place where no harm can come to them. Parenting as a ball means that balls bounce, so you're teaching your child to bounce, Because here's the thing. In either case, you recognize that there are hard things coming in life. There are bumps along the way. And so the question is whether the bump shatters the egg or bounces the ball, whether the ball will bounce back up and keep on going or whether it comes apart like an egg. The fact is that kids are like balls. They just need to be taught how to be that resilient person, that thriving child. Kind of like those turtles. They have to be dragged through, dragging themselves through the sand. You can't help them through that. So one of the things I've noticed many times is that parents uh, often do a bit too much for their kids and provide a bit too much protection from the kids, and they fix a bit too many things when they need to let it play out. I've watched a lot of parents along the way try to keep their child from hitting a tough spot, not realizing that those tough spots in early childhood and even middle childhood and even later childhood are necessary to learn how to deal with the bigger ones down the road because most of the ones early along are recoverable. But sometimes, People try to keep their children from having any problems, any struggles, any difficulties with peers or with other parents or with teachers or with authority figures anywhere, and when they do that, they take away that child's capacity of learning how to deal with those tough times so that when they come down the road, they either know how to avoid them or how to deal with them as they come. Same thing is happening with those turtles. They're, they're learning how to crawl through that sand at a time when if they get a little off course, somebody can just correct them over a little bit and getting them headed on down. But they still have to make the crawl because when they hit that water, they have to be ready to swim. So part of what we do in this series is talk about how to manage that safety zone while letting a child still strengthen themselves along the way. How we teach them to bounce, if you use that ball analogy, and how you parent from the ball analogy rather than the egg analogy. So to get there, let's talk about some underlying issues. One of them is the fact that you have a child with this brain, and that brain is under development. So we kind of need to understand how that brain develops along the way, because it helps you understand what conversations you're having and when. So the first thing to understand is that all of our brains come in three different layers, from primitive to much more recent. And the most primitive, uh, sometimes scientists will call it uh, brain one, or the reptilian brain, or the R-complex Brain. I love reptilian brain because that's kind of like a, you know, it gives you a, a real image of what that part of the brain is like. We share that with other creatures that crawl and swim and slither, and that part of the brain is about survival, getting what needs to be gotten. And so, when a baby is born, that part of the brain is already operational. In fact, it's operational in utero. It's already going and sensing for threats. This is one of the things we realize is that when parents are in stressful times during pregnancy, the child is experiencing that stress, and it begins to trigger that part of the brain that's feeling the threat. So when they're born, they are immediately looking for satisfaction of survival needs, which is to be warm, to be changed, to be fed, to be held. Those are the survival needs of an infant. And so that's part of what you hear in the baby's cry. And you can often notice that a baby gets more and more angry when the needs aren't getting met. If you've ever had that moment when you can't figure out what's going on with a child and the child seems to not just be kind of wounded or hurt anymore, but angry, you realize that part of what's going on is that child is beginning to feel like the safety is, is not quite there. They're trying to find a way of feeling safer in the midst of all of that. So the reptilian brain brain one. The next part of the brain comes online. Now, now all three are already in some ways activated when a baby is born, but when they begin to come fully online, the next one is brain two, creatively called brain two, or the mammalian brain or the limbic system. The mammalian brain, I love that term because we we share that with warm-blooded creatures. It tends to be that warm-blooded creatures like to, to be uh, connected with each other in some way. Now, they may be loners a lot of the time, but they, they kind of, especially in childhood, tend to stay with the parents a little bit longer. They need to be nurtured along the way. And sometimes you'll notice there's that pack mentality, which we call the tribal mentality, right? That where we, you are a part of a group. So the limbic system is what's responsible for that. And it's coming online as our kids are coming in school. And it continues to come online into uh, middle adolescence, you know, into those teen years. And so that part of the brain is the part where your, your child is trying to figure out who's in and who's out, who's a part of its group and who's not. And so if you've ever watched kids when they're that you know, two, two, second to third grade kind of period, it's really spiking at that point for a moment where they're trying to figure out who their friends are. And maybe they divide it across gender and they have the cootie club or, you know, some other way of saying you're out and you're in, or maybe they do it by fashion. Who has a certain kind of shoe is my friend and who doesn't, doesn't, and all kinds of different ways that we create those groupings. And you'll notice that schools tend to do that. So they name certain groups within their school because that naturally builds into the place where that child is at that point. And it continues into the teen years. And the limbic system is part of our emotional world where we feel emotions based on our connection with other people. So that limbic system is coming online. You see the spikes in emotions that we're sometimes surprised by a child reacting in such strong ways that they didn't react to last week. They suddenly are activated because that part of the brain is is coming online, is, is, is really getting established, and is really working to understand the world. And so that part, that emotional part of the brain brings in another layer. Here's why. When that part of the brain is going on, it's always trying to get a charge from the emotions. And it's always trying to get that emotional feel good from something else. So one way of doing that is a lot of excitement doing something kind of daring, kind of makes him, you know, gets a little uh, adrenaline going, and that feels really good because the third brain is still struggling to come on board. The third brain, brain three, is the neocortex, top layer of the brain for humans, and mostly developed in humans beyond most other animals. Uh, We're not sure about comparing it to some other animals, but for the most part, we humans have this in, in greater capacity where we have language capacity. We can talk to each other just as I'm talking with you now. We can talk to each other and use that as symbolic ways of understanding what's going on. If I say apple, immediately you picture apple. If I say pink elephant, you immediately imagine pink elephant because I'm giving you a symbolic word that connects with something that you can conjure in your head. And if I said 2 plus 2, you probably automatically say equals 4 because that part of the brain also does calculations. It's logical. It does executive functioning, as the term is, where executive function is decision-making. And the decision-making part continues to grow. So here's the big thing to recognize. That part of the brain is still coming online between the ages of 21 and 26. Girls, women begin to get that uh, faster than boys, men. Uh, and so a lot of time women will have that neocortex pretty much kind of going and, and, and you know developed when they're 21, 22. Guys tend to uh, keep developing until they're 24, 25, 26, which if you notice corresponds with the same kind of uh, time when the risk factors begin to drop. Women tend to uh, be safer drivers at 21-22 and make better decisions in life at 21-22, while guys at 21-22 are still starting a lot of conversations with, hey, guys, watch this, and then doing something foolish. And so we watch that they finally get to that same maturation point at 24, 25, 26. So if you're dealing with a 20-something-year-old and you're going, what is up with their decision making, now you know. So why is that important? Well, a lot of times, that, now that part of the brain, it's not like it hasn't been active before. You know, it's the part of the brain that your, your child is using in school to remember facts and figures and make calculations. And so it's coming online. But there are some pieces that aren't. Years ago, I remember I was in middle school, and I could not do—they put me in algebra. We moved, and it was a junior high school. We'd moved from an elementary school to, to a new town that was using junior high school. I was already a year out of junior high because my, the, the way they set up the grades was different. And so when they dropped me in, they dropped me into algebra. Here was the problem. My little brain was not ready for that. My dyslexia would kick in uh, and my abstract thinking wasn't there. And so I was bombing algebra in a new school, in a new town, and was just struggling with it. And so they dropped me back to a pre-algebra class, which meant the next year I got to do algebra and the next year I had no problem. Why? Because my brain had developed to a level that could understand the abstract thinking And I could manage the switch-ups that my brain was doing as a dyslexic and could get on course. So all of that was happening in the span of a year just because it was developing. So here's the place you think about that because that's true for everyone. You you realize that some kids just aren't quite ready for some skill set. And then the next year they master it easily. Well, what's going on is that neocortex is developing. And as a parent of a teenager, you need to be aware of one thing. You may believe that you are having a conversation with a child who is able to uh, talk with you in sensible ways. You have a conversation with them, and it seems like a rational, logical, sensible conversation. And then they don't do what you expect. And the reason they don't do what you expect is because you thought their brain, their neocortex brain, was having a conversation with you. But in reality, you were talking to the limbic system where the neocortex was pretending to be in charge, which explains to us a lot of why we have to say it over and over and over and over And over and over and over to kids because you're trying to get into a part of the brain that is still trying to come online and doing battle with the other two levels. Remember, the limbic system is about connection, not so much about protection, right? It's about connecting with other people rather than survival skills. And so you see the spikes along the way as, as kids are struggling with that. And the neocortex comes on and it's trying to understand how to hold all of those emotional things going on at the same time that it's trying to figure out how to, to do sensible things in life. That's what's happening as kids are going through what they're going through. And we don't remember it that way because when we look back, we kind of think that we were the logical, sensible ones. And we might look back and go, okay, yeah, I made some bad decisions there. But, you know, for the most part, I was much more logical and sensible. Probably not. You just remember it through different filters. So what is this piece of the puzzle of parenting? How do we get to the place where we're parenting to thrive, Well, there are a couple of things I want to unpack as we go along. First of all is to recognize that learning is a lifelong process. You're still learning. You're still growing. Your kids are learning and growing. So wherever they are now, they will be learning and growing to a new place. So this is not about being a perfect parent. There is no such thing. You're not going to be a perfect parent. You will make mistakes. And you know what? That's okay because kids don't need perfect parents. They need parents who love and support them and help them move forward. If you're a perfect parent, your child has no reason to ever leave you, and that's not the goal of parenting. So we're aiming for for good enough parenting. So you want to be a good parent, as best a parent as you can be, but please don't get trapped into the place of pretending to be a perfect parent. Instagram and Facebook have led us to believe that there are such things as perfect parents. They are not in the world. They do not exist. Don't buy into that. Just be the best parent you can be. Also, don't look for perfect kids. Perfect kids would be robots. We're not looking for that. In fact, perfect kids would be kids who never make mistakes and always make the best calculation. And guess what? That's not sustainable. You want kids that learn from the tough times, that learn from the bumps along the way. And you want kids that are learning from you how to thrive. When you're talking about parenting for thriving, there are a couple of things that we put in those parameters. First, I always believe that you parent by example. If you'll notice in all of kind of the animal kingdom, the way baby animals learn how to be in the world is by watching the parent animals. They know how, and this is at least true for mammals, some other things are left alone when they are born and they have to figure it out. But mammals, for the most part, teach the young how to do things by example. Not words, they don't tell them philosophies of life or how they should do things or to, to do as I say, not as I do. They do as they do. And so children are naturally wired to learn by example. If you are telling a child to do something, but you're doing another, they will take the bigger lesson from what you're doing than what you're saying. So the first thing is a parenting for thriving is by example. You teach by example first. Second, it's about protection from the edges. Think about that, that row we, we built for the turtles. The turtles had no idea we were protecting them. So they were still having their own struggle along the way, but we were there to reorient them if they needed it. And so parenting is about protecting from a slight distance. So the child has a chance of, of having some tough times, but not so dangerously tough so that they have some places where they have to learn, but not in ways that are dangerous to them as much as we can. So parenting for thriving is protecting from a little distance. The second thing, parenting for, or the third thing, that parenting for thriving is about trying to teach resilience, how to deal with the tough times, not avoid the tough times, not pretend that the tough times didn't happen, not to have a parent fix the tough times, but how to deal with the adversity that comes through life. And then the last piece is that parenting for thriving is about growing and moving regardless of what life gets in the way. Life's got tough stuff in front of all of us. And so it's not a matter of life being bad because bad things happening. It's life being life. And along the way, there's some bad things. How do you keep moving forward? So regardless of what's going on in life, we continue to work to thrive. Okay, so that kind of gives you some, some pieces of understanding of where we're headed with this. And one of the things I always recommend is that parents work on their own thriving skills first. A lot of times when parents are in protection mode, it's because they haven't figured out how to do that that uh, their own thriving. If you're kind of challenged with that, if you're trying to figure out how to implement it in your life, as we go through this series, let me recommend that you grab my book, thrive principles. Thrive principles are 15 strategies that you can implement in your life in order to build towards a more thriving life. They are pieces that you just kind of push in. I've had so many people say, you know, it's just so easy to read and so easy to implement once you break it down the way you break it down. And that's my strategy, to make the strategies work for you easily. At the end of every chapter, I have a cheat sheet that you can use to make sure that you're following the process. And here's the thing. This becomes multi-generational. When you learn to thrive better, you're automatically teaching your kids to thrive because they're watching you do it. If you don't have Thrive Principles, please grab that. And as we go through this series, you'll begin to see how unpacking your own thriving life helps us unpack how to be a thriving parent. You can find Thrive Principles wherever you like to buy books yourself already. Just go and and get it there, whether it's online or in a store. The store doesn't have it. They can order it for you. Or you can learn more about it at thethriveprinciples.com, thethriveprinciples.com. This is Lee Balkum wishing you the best as you work to build a thriving life. You've been listening to the Thrivology Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T H R I V E O L O G Y. It's your life. Time to live it.